There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, here we are again. We are. Another day, another pandemic. And another day working from Zoom in remote locations. Exactly. So Greg, as you know, last week we went over risk and the difference in risk perception, risk tolerance, and risk capacity, or what some people call risk threshold. And today we're going to dig into it a little bit in a different way. We're going to talk about, well, what to do. Just because we've identified the different types of risk, what they are, we're trying to answer those questions that we get like, should I be invested in the bond market when interest rates are so low? Or should I be invested in the stock market when the stock markets are at all-time highs? So today we're going to have some fun with that. Sounds great. Let's dive in. Yeah, let's dive in. Exactly. I wanted to look at, firstly, drawdowns in stock market history. And the reason I wanted to look at that was because a lot of our conversations these days are focused around what happened in March. And well, you remember what happened in March. Oh, yeah. Everything came to a halt and the stock market went down 35% in the fastest bear market in stock market history and followed by the fastest bull market in stock market history. But I looked at an article by Ben Carlson, who we've had on the show, Ben, co-host of another podcast called Animal Spirits and a blogger and author. And he wrote a blog about the market and bear markets and I guess the reason I want to talk about this is that many people these days are talking about the stock market and the economy and the impact of things like COVID, a lockdown, what that's going to do to the economy. Yeah, so that's going to play out in the market as well. But over the last 90 years or so, the market's actually been in a bear market almost 25% of the time or one quarter of the time. Can you believe that number? That's actually larger than I would have thought. And 50% of the time, the market is down 5% or more in any given time period. So it's difficult to appreciate this fact when you look at a chart because the charts always look like they're going up and to the right because the charts are longer. Exactly. You look at a 90-year chart of the market and it's gone up a lot. But when you narrow it down to shorter time periods, that doesn't really tell the whole story. You can sort of see long periods where it's not going up. Yeah. And so if you look at a chart of over a one day or one week period, it could be completely different than a 90 year chart, as you point out. So this is why stocks are constantly playing mind games with us in that people always expect them to go up. But as we just pointed out, 25% of the time, the market is in a bear market. So no one can predict what the future returns will be in the market. No one knows what the future holds for economic growth, especially right now, Greg, as we are in our, is this our second lockdown or third lockdown? I think this is the second lockdown, but it's a big one right now in Calgary. We're going into restaurants shutting down again, and it's a tough one. Yeah. So it's hard to predict with certainty in this uncertain environment, what's going to happen in the next 30 days to 365 days or more. But predicting future risk is actually pretty easy. 
Markets will continue to fluctuate and experience losses on a pretty regular basis. But conversely to that, Greg, it also means that they're also experiencing growth on a regular basis. So as an investor in stocks, you have to spend a lot of time second-guessing yourself because you see the portfolios fallen at certain periods like March, and it drives people to make certain decisions. But in a sense, risk is easier to predict than returns. Market losses are the one constant that don't change over time. They're just cyclical. So what we wanted to get into today was a little bit about what do you do when you have income requirements when a market's down or growth requirements? And what do you do when you have things like torpedo stocks or maybe even financial Armageddon? And I know this is something we talked about in episode four, and I'm going to hand it over to you at this point to talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I think it's a good time to revisit that discussion from episode four. And interestingly, as you say, I was just taking a quick look. This year, despite everything that's happened, we're sitting here around the middle of December. The Canadian stock market, which has not even been a great performer this year, but the Canadian stock market is up over 3% on the year to date. So what it gets down to is that when we've talked about this before, just being in the market and the whole market is probably a pretty good way to earn a reasonable return over a long period of time. But what happens when you are not exposed to the whole market, but you're exposed either to a concentrated portion of the market or a concentrated stock position? And this gets back to, there was a paper we talked about back in episode four, and it was entitled Torpedo Stocks, Market Declines, and the Time Cost of Being Wrong. And basically, the thesis of the paper was that when you express opportunity cost of being wrong in terms of time rather than the amount of underperformance, let's say, it really identifies the potential impact on your total portfolio and the growth of wealth over time. And as we've also discussed in other episodes, we believe every investor should engage in financial planning. We've talked about that a lot lately. And everyone should have a plan that documents their financial vision for the future and any activities that need to be taken to achieve that vision. Yeah, Greg, agreed 100%. Yet everybody talks about the stock market and not the financial plan. Exactly. And really what investors are looking for out of the stock market in terms of returns, really it's only relevant in the way that how it helps them achieve those financial goals that they've identified. And when we're doing these projections or this planning, you really depend on the power of compounding returns, essentially indefinitely into the future. Anytime we do planning or projections, we know that we have to assume some average rate of return over some period of time that we're looking for. So typically when we're doing our planning, we'll use, I don't know, 4% to 5% maximum in terms of expected or assumed returns. We need to do that to be conservative because there's no guarantee you're going to get returns any better than that. So we try to pick numbers that are reasonable. Well, and actually, I remember when we started in this industry, the number wasn't 4 or 5%. Returns were usually projected at 8 or 10% in financial plans. That's right. Exactly. And so now we've gone with a much more conservative number. We also get really conservative on things like inflation because everybody ignores that little aspect too. Exactly. And so we have to be realistic because certainly when you look at the returns of the stock markets over the last number of years, I mean, there's been some good years, way better than 5%, and there's been some pretty poor years. 
So we need to pick numbers that are reasonable. But here's the thing. So when we do this planning and we estimate a 4 to 5% return, whatever it might be, as I said, we assume that we're earning that return every year and that return compounds over time. So what the author of this paper that we're talking about did is he looked at the impact of, in this case, what he called torpedo stocks, stocks that don't perform as expected. And in fact, torpedo, as the name suggests, go down regardless of what's happening in the rest of the market and look at what their impact would be on a concentrated portfolio. And these stocks don't even have to go to zero. They just have to underperform dramatically. And to give you an idea, we're talking about this paper was done back in about 1998. And so what the author did was come up with a portfolio of 10 stocks and said, well, what would be the odds? What if somebody suffered some declines from individual stocks? And he built this 10-stock portfolio when there was a number of names in there that would have been familiar to people investing back in the late 90s. But the bottom line is that out of that 10-stock portfolio, three of them were torpedoes. And so they tanked the portfolio, and that portfolio would have fallen 10%, even if the remaining stocks, the other seven stocks that weren't torpedoes, had earned a decent return, say 8% a year. So we've got a portfolio now that was down 10% in a year when the Toronto Stock Exchange was actually up 13%. So these three positions underperforming and the other seven performed at average market returns or better, average being that 8 or 9 or 10%, whatever it is, and the overall return of the portfolio was still negative 10%. Correct. So 70% of the portfolio was up and 30% went down and it didn't work out very well. That's right. When it so happened, they went down a reasonable amount, but they did not go to zero. So now the question is, you've got this underperformance for a year. And then what he did is said, well, given the fact that we're now that far behind, how many years will it take us to catch up just to the market portfolio? So how many years will we catch up to if we had just done as well as the market index? And in order to catch up, of course, you have to perform better than the market itself. So let's say the market in those days, was growing 12% a year, which is a pretty high number. That is. You just lost 10% in that one year. And by the way, 12% a year is pretty unrealistic over long periods of time, but you certainly can get it one or two years. So here's the thing. In order to catch up, you've got to earn 15%, so 3% better than the market for four years straight. And all that does is get you back to where you would have been had you not suffered the underperformance in the first place, had you just owned the market index. What it's highlighting here is that the whole issue of underperformance, you can't afford to underperform dramatically in any one year because it's not really the underperformance that matters of that particular year. It's how long is it going to take you to catch up? And so I always use this analogy of, let's say, the case of a marathon runner. Marathon runners are highly experienced. They've run dozens of marathons, possibly more thousands of miles training, and they know exactly what their times are. Let's say you're an average runner, you're in the middle of the pack in a marathon, and you stumble, you fall. Well, by the time you get back up and dust yourself off and start running again, you're not in the middle of the pack anymore. You could be closer to the back of the pack. And at that point, you may never make it back into the middle because you have to run faster than you can just in order to get back to where you were before you fell. And so the analogy basically says, when you're planning, when you've got goals that you're trying to achieve, 
and you require a certain rate of return, then you can't afford to fall behind in a time when the market is doing well. You have to do as well as the market and to deliver your returns that you need to achieve those goals. Let's talk about that as it compares to a sprint. So you're talking about a marathon, but an extreme example is Usain Bolt. I can say his name because he's a real person. Like he's a former Olympic champion, world record holder in the 100 and 200 meter races. And I was reading in the Washington Post that Usain Bolt has actually never run more than one mile in length at any one given time. Unbelievable. Isn't that insane? So to me, like, of course, you're not going to stand a chance against Usain Bolt when you get into the starting blocks of a sprint. But just, I guess, to highlight your argument is that, so what? So Usain Bolt beats you for the first 800 meters, but he can't run or he's not run longer than 800 meters ever. So couldn't you just catch him by like mile three or four? (laughs) You would think. And that's the point. And when we're talking about long-term financial planning and investing for the long-term, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We have to be there through good times and bad times and still come out at the end with our expected annual return. And Greg, the average fund return in the marketplace is typically the market return less expenses, correct? Exactly. That's right. So you can hit a home run out of the gates and think it's easy and then get caught up or have the market catch you at the one mile marker. As you like to say, on average, we're all average investors. (laughs) Well, I can't remember where we picked that up from. It was like, on average, we're all average, making an average number of good decisions and an average number of bad decisions. It's pretty sobering, (laughs) right? It is. It is. But listen, you had a real life example that you told me about last week, just with this whole concept of torpedo stocks. For sure. And as I said at the beginning of this, During times of volatility is when we tend to look at a lot of portfolios of people that we don't deal with because, let's face it, people are talking to their peers about their experience. So when the market goes way down or the market goes way up and it's top of mind is typically when people are talking to their friends and family members about their experience. So as a result of this, I had a couple that was referred to me and we went through their portfolio and their portfolio had gone from a million dollars to $250,000 in March. Unbelievable. Because the market didn't go down 75%. The market went down 35%. Exactly. So they obviously had torpedo stocks in there, as you just pointed out. And when I asked them, well, how did you make these decisions? Now, let me be fair. That portfolio is now back to 500000 or something like that. But I said, how did you come up with these decisions to invest in these concentrated oil and gas stocks in Calgary? And it's because I said, well, we followed the advice of a broker and that's what he suggested we do. Unbelievable. So that's scary because their questions now are, is this reasonable? I guess everybody's down like this. And I say to them, well, no, not everybody is. I can happily point to our model portfolios that over the last 12 months, Not a single one of our model portfolios has a negative return. And that includes what happened in March. So when they're asking, well, what should I do now? Like, what should I do? And we're chatting about this. And you made a comment, something like, would you invest in the same positions now? That's right. A lot of people, when you have a situation where you've been concentrated, let's say, in a stock or 
more likely in this case, a sector of the market that has really gone through hard times. And certainly, as we know, certain sectors like oil and gas or energy in general has suffered a lot more than the broad market. Then say, well, what do I do? Do I sell out now and risk missing the big return to normalcy or the outperformance that maybe energy stocks might have when things improve in that market? And that's a tough one because it's like the attitude is, well, gee, the horse is already out of the barn. Why do I want to slam the door shut now? We just need to ride it out and wait for energy stocks to come back and then we'll rebalance the portfolio. But what I usually say to clients is, look, just because you own it today doesn't mean you have to. And certainly in fee-based accounts, or there's no cost to doing transactions. And so holding a portfolio of energy stocks today is no different than holding a portfolio of cash. If you have $500,000 in oil and gas stocks or $500,000 in cash, it's the same thing. The question is, if you were sitting with cash instead of these stocks, how would you build a portfolio today? Would you put $500,000 into energy stocks if you didn't own them already? Or would you put the 500000 into a diverse portfolio? I think most people would say, no, I would probably build a diversified portfolio with the cash that I have. And I think that's the way you need to look at it. Never mind that you've suffered a loss. A loss is history. $500,000 is what we have today to invest. And that's the way we should think about it. Yeah. And of course, hindsight bias comes into play because you hear all the, well, I would have done this, or I should have done that, or I could have done that, or but that's just not real. And so sometimes the answer we hear is that someone is waiting for something to get better before investing again. And that sounds a lot like, okay, so you're going to sell out now when things are down and you're going to buy back in when things are more expensive. That sounds like selling low and buying high, which is exactly opposite to what you want to do. So I agree with you that if you look at it, I mean, you can't really say energy stocks are like cash, but their market value is the same. So if the market value is the same and you have a higher opportunity of growth from doing the things that we've talked about in lots of podcasts and lots of presentations and focusing on those things that you can control. So the number one thing is asset allocation. Like how much should you actually have invested in stocks? How much should be in Canadian stocks? How much should be in energy stocks? I mean, we have a pretty good argument for having a very small amount of Canadian stocks. Canada is only 3% of the world market cap, yet most Canadians have 90% of their investments in Canadian stocks or investments. So that's a little scary. So focus on your asset allocation, be diversified. I know this sounds like super lame. It's not the sexy type of discussion. It's fun when people talk about how they want to buy this stock, this cannabis stock or cryptocurrency and things like that, but it doesn't necessarily work very well. No, not necessarily. Exactly. So be diversified, harness the power of markets, just like we pointed out over a 90-year period, 25% of the time the market's going to be down. But that means that 75% of the time the market is going to be up. Invest, don't speculate would be another comment we would make. So maybe instead of buying those three or four small energy companies, you actually put it into a better portfolio. And I guess the last two would be reduce your fees and expenses as much as possible. And that's getting easier as you just point out, like trade costs actually are pretty much zero these days. I mean, in the US, you can actually trade stocks for free. So there's constant fee compression and that will continue. And lastly, understand your biases. So as I just said, it's kind of fun to talk about stocks and 
with the right people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you should be investing that way. And we've talked about loss aversion bias many times. And in the example we just talked about with the energy-focused portfolio down 50% even now, the aversion to selling is loss aversion. And that's a very typical human bias. I don't want to sell anything at a loss. I want to wait for it to get back to where it was when I bought it, and then I'll sell. And that's not necessarily the best thing in the long run, but it's a totally understandable thing for people to think about. Let's talk this through a little bit more because there's another kind of risk that lines up into this conversation. That's a sequential risk. Basically, what that talks about is the order of returns. The order of returns, as you say, we're going to get a bear market 25% of the time and decent market 75% of the time. And if you're just investing and never taking money out of your portfolio, it doesn't really matter whether the good years come early or the bad years come early. Over time, you're going to get the average return. But of course, it's not the same for every person. And when we're talking about people that are living off their money, whether they're retired and living off their assets, then the order of returns can have a big impact. And so what we don't want to do is suffer a really substantial loss in the early going, which will then reduce the amount of funds we have available to recover later on and to provide the income that we need. Well, the way to reduce the risk You can't avoid it, obviously, but the way to reduce it is to not be 100% invested in one asset class. If the stock market goes down in a bad bear market or in a bad year, you've got other assets, bonds or cash investments and real estate possibly to help offset that loss and give you a better return than otherwise you would have had. So that's just, once again, an argument for asset allocation. It's the right argument because it's Depending who you talk to, what field they're in, somebody's always going to say you should be 100% in this or 100% in that. And they might be right for a small period of time. It's kind of like, I remember in February, there was a, a friend of mine said another friend of ours had gotten scared of the stock market and sold out their investments 100% in February. Can you believe that? Wow. Well, and that was excellent timing on the way out. On the way out. Exactly. Did they buy back in? (laughs) I do not believe that that person bought back in. So yes, they missed, I guess, some short-term pain, call it March, but they also missed the fastest bull market in stock market history. The fact that the US markets are at all-time highs, the fact that November was the number one performing month in the S&P 500's history. I mean, all those things were missed. And we don't want to belabor the point. I think we've talked about market timing, maybe a lot. 18 or 20 of our 31. (laughs) But it comes up all the time. It's like the one thing that comes up all the time. So yeah, sequential risk is an important one to avoid. And actually, I guess I would argue on the other side of that is we do have people that their investment portfolio will never be touched during their lifetimes because they've got pensions that cover their day-to-day expenses. So you could make an argument that they could have more risk in their portfolio than somebody that is using their investment portfolio as their pension. Exactly. But in any situation, if the stock market was down and you had income requirements, well, I guess you'd take it from bonds. If the bond market was down and you had income requirements, I guess you'd take it from stocks, right? That's right. You have that flexibility in a diverse portfolio. Right on. So what about some other current themes that people are looking at these days that we keep hearing about? The usuals, I guess Bitcoin has been in the news a lot because I think it jumped up to an all-time high a week or two ago, $19,000. 
And then on one day, I think it was down $3,000. So certainly a highly volatile type of investment and maybe not for the average person. Tech stocks, of course, are all in the news and continue to drive a lot of the growth of the S&P 500. The extent to which they'll be able to continue that, who knows, but right now they're still very newsworthy. And we also talked about last time about this move of growth versus value, stocks that are trading at high relative prices compared to stocks trading at low relative prices, which are value stocks. And we're starting to see that rotation into value stocks from the growth stocks like the tech stocks. And to what extent that continues, we'll have to see. But that's kind of what's going on right now. Well, I'd like to finish this off talking a little bit about doing a health check. So Greg, I just got back from the doctor from an annual physical. I don't actually get an annual physical. It's probably more like a biannual or something like that. But regardless, there's a regular check-in to see how things are going. And in the short term, that's important. And in the long term, it's probably more important. But my question for you, Greg, is why don't people do like an annual physical or an annual checkup on their financial well-being? Why? I think sometimes it's just not top of mind and you get so caught up in the day-to-day of what's the market doing today or what's the news coming out of the US that you tend to focus on the what I'll call the little picture and not so much on the big picture. Yet then you go through something like March and then up to today with bear market, bull market, et cetera, and the economy is all over the news and it has led to, Greg, this is shameless self-promotion at its best for us. Okay. All right. But it has led to people wanting us to look at their portfolios because of the fact that our model portfolios are all showing positive returns during this hyper volatile time. And those models were built based off of historical events. Like we didn't used to invest this way prior to the global financial crisis or the global credit crisis, whatever you want to call it. But it was during that time period that made us rethink, well, what works and what doesn't? And it's great that the portfolios we've constructed, they work. And let me ask you, do those portfolios include making bold predictions about whether work-from-home stocks or ride-sharing companies or digital currencies are going to become the new way next year? Well, of course not. No, no, they don't. <laughs> and when our model portfolios are strictly asset allocation models, they're how much do you want in stocks? How much do you want in bonds? build a diverse portfolio of both and leave it alone. And I'm proud of the work we've done in regards to that because I've looked at just way too many portfolios that are not having the same experience. Like I looked at another one, a lady's portfolio was down 80%. Oh my God, that's terrible. So what did we learn today? We learned that there's a difference on return in your portfolio during drawdowns in the stock market. The importance of avoiding torpedo stocks and the consequences of holding such an investment, the importance of sequential risk, and the fact that, listen, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So take all those things into consideration when you're doing your investing, and we'll catch up with you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. 
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.